You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The following is an Airwaves Media Podcast. Now that we're traveling again, here's a pro tip for those who wish to stroll the heather of the Scottish Highlands or hit the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Pay attention to your money. Scotland uses the same coins as the rest of the UK, but they have their own folding money, which looks quite different from the notes you see south of Hadrian's Wall. But the most important distinction is that they're not legal tender. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. In the before time, in the long, long ago, early man bartered for their individual needs. If you needed, say, a stone axe to cut wood, and you happen to have a nice giant ground sloth pelt, Bob's your uncle. Assuming the guy with the extra axe needed a sloth pelt just then. I did double-check that man and sloth lived at the same time. Then I remembered a survey that found that 41% of respondents thought humans and dinosaurs lived together like it was the friggin' Flintstones. And I had to go take a despair nap. Bartering had a major drawback in that you had to find someone who needed what you had and had what you needed at the exact same time. And what if the thing you needed isn't worth the thing you have? Like, you need a new water jug, but all you have to trade is a nanny goat. Water jug ain't worth a goat. That's where commodity currencies develop, usually with the staple crop of the region, like wheat in Europe and rice in Asia. You get the idea. Now, the value of each item is how much of that commodity it's worth, and you can pay for the water jug with the correct portion of grain, rather than giving up a goat that could give you milk for years. As people advanced and settled down, they chose particular items to attach specific value to, an intermediary item in the process. The example usually cited are cowrie shells, which in the modern era appear mostly in the form of necklaces worn by boys with frosted hair in the 90s. By the by, if we're getting all nostalgic for the 90s, uh, how come nobody's bothering to bring back Malibu musk? I loved that. Cowrie shells were first used as money around 1200 BCE, and it wasn't a localized phenomenon. Cowrie was cash throughout parts of Europe, Asia, Oceania, and Western Africa. Why shells, though? Well, they have a lot going for them. They're small, easy to carry and handle, and they're built to last, unlike our paper currency, which can only handle the occasional accidental trip through the washing machine so many times. In North America, mollusk material was turned into wampum, gorgeously hand-carved tubular beads. When you look at them and think about how long they must take to make with hand tools, you say, yeah, that's worth some recompense. Many early currencies lived up to Teddy Roosevelt's axiom, do what you can where you are with what you have. For the Solomon Islands east of Papua New Guinea, who made an appearance in episode Meeting New Peoples way back in 2018 for the fascinating fact that 10% of these dark-skinned people naturally have blue eyes and blonde hair with no European blood in the mix. For them, that means 
dolphin teeth. The dolphin was and is an important resource for the island, providing them with meat and fat as well as the teeth. They practiced drive hunting, herding the animals into one spot for the kill. In this case, by means of banging rocks together underwater to jam the dolphin's echolocation. The dolphin's teeth were used as currency for bride price, as jewelry, or sold for cash. Did I say were? I meant are. Despite environmentalists trying to kibosh the dolphin hunts, the teeth have only increased in value. Value being a relative term, since that increase was from 14 cents in 2004 to about 70 cents in 2013. The practice was thought to have stopped in the 19th century, probably after Christian missionaries started coming around and mucking about in people's happy lives. 100 years later, around 1948 though, the hunt was on again. And by the mid-1960s, several thousand dolphins were being killed every year. Plus others were being captured and sold to marine entertainment parks. In 2010, the conservation group Earth Island Institute agreed to pay the people of the largest island not to hunt dolphins. But within a few years, the islanders resumed, saying that Earth Island Institute had failed to deliver. According to a study, from 1976 to 2013 documented a minimum total of 15,454 dolphins killed by the Fenelay villagers alone. But on the plus side, None of the dolphins they're hunting are listed as vulnerable or endangered species, so at least there's that. What if you live in a place that has no copper, silver, or gold to make coins? Again, use what you've got, and if all you've got is limestone, you make stone money. And apparently, you make it big. Picture a stone wheel, like you'd see a cartoon caveman carve. Now make it over six feet across. That's a ray stone, or possibly rye stone, R-A-I. I think I first learned about them in a National Geographic kids magazine back in the 80s. Join me now as we travel to the petite Micronesian island of Yap, and the largest money ever used in the world. Centuries ago, some Yapese people sailed to Paolo Island, no mean feat at 250 miles or 400 kilometers away. And there they discovered aragonite, kind of a cousin to limestone, I think. I wanted to find a definition of aragonite that would make its appeal instantly obvious, but like a ruffled bit of string tied in the middle, I'm afraid not. Anyway, whatever aragonite is, it's a good thing, and the Yappies wanted to take it home. They carved huge chunks of stone out, in circles that would roll, with a hole for a spoke to go through. Genius in its simplicity, and no less impressive in scale. Then they moved the stones, some weighing six tons, the 250 miles back, on rafts made of bamboo pulled by canoes. This was a dodgy business at best, and a lot of people were hurt or killed doing it. All that effort and risk just fed into the raystone's value. The value of a stone was determined by its physical characteristics, obviously, its provenance, like how many people died getting it here, and interestingly, if anyone of rank had owned it before. 
stones that have been used by important people gained some additional value almost by proxy, something that didn't happen when they were used by your average Joe. While the stones feel like something from prehistory, and no new stones have been quarried since 1931, they are still in use today, albeit not to the extent they once were. Modern money is used to handle most workaday purchases, but large purchases, like homes, are still sometimes paid for with aragonite stones. Do you have to roll your six-ton stone down to the bank? Nope. Even when a stone changes hands, it stays put most of the time because, again, six tons. Besides, everyone knows who owns which stones and they keep an eye out for one another. That, plus the heft of the thing, makes the larger stones essentially theft-proof. If someone manages to steal one without being noticed, I say let him have it. If you want something more standardized and controllable than seashells and more practical than giant rocks, you have to give people a specific alternative. Metal items have been used as money as far back as Babylon pre-2000 BCE, but standardized official coinage didn't roll out until the 7th century BCE in the Kingdom of Lydia, present-day Turkey. These coins were made of the awesome-sounding electrum, a natural mixture of gold and silver, bearing the royal symbol of a lion and shaped like a bean. Some official currency began appearing elsewhere and else what. Lots of different materials have been used, metal and paper, of course, but also leather, starting around the 6th century BCE and showing up in early Rome, Carthage, and Gaul. The Chinese emperor Wu Di of the 1st century BCE created currency out of the skins of his personal collection of white stags. It was fringed and decorated with elaborate designs. Leather money was still being used up into the reign of Peter the Great in Russia, and we're talking then 18th century. There were so many more fascinating ancient currencies than I could get to with the time I had to work this week. Everything from bricks of tea, metal snakes, wooden bills, and paper money with the person's face cut out. So I guess that's going to go in a bonus mini-episode over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. That's where folks like Ray, Pigeon, Paul, Marissa... David N. and Emma Cation likely get early ad-free access, bonus material, and all kinds of other good stuff, like merch discounts, which you could use over on our Tee Public store, yourbrainonfacts.com slash merch, not only to get the new critical thinking shirt I designed, but also the Russian warship Go F Yourself t-shirt, raising money for the Red Cross. If you'd like to help financially, but kind of just this once, Anything is appreciated over at coffeeko/fi.com slash yourbrainonfacts. But of course, the best way to help a show is to tell people about it. And I need a little bit more help than usual right there. It's almost time for episode 200, and I need more guest facts. So when you see me post on social media, whether about 200 or something else, tag your favorite podcasters in the comments. Let as many people as possible know that I've got this going on. And Patreon patrons, if they so choose, get to record and submit a fact too. Just another great reason to support your brain on facts. Boy, that sounded grovelly. 
Speaking of China, it's widely believed to be the birthplace of paper money during the 10th century reign of Emperor Shenzong. This paper was made from the bark of mulberry trees. It would take another 800 years before the idea really spread widely. And even then, these bills were not money money, but promissory notes, promises to pay specific amounts of gold or silver, which were key in the later development of banking. Moving back to coinage, we go now to the country that borrowed from China the way Rome borrowed stuff, piffling things like democracy and gods, from Greece, Japan. Specifically, the Japan of the 8th century, the Nara period. Remember back in 05-ish, when the U.S. Mint tried to get us all on board with the Washington dollar coin and we as a nation in the most united stance we have ever exhibited, said, nah, we're good. That's coin money in ancient Japan, except the Nara and subsequent Heian governments kept after the idea for about 200 years. Things started off well enough in 708, when the first copper coins were introduced. Round affairs with a square hole in the middle and four written characters around that also known as exactly what Chinese coins look like. Government officials and workers were paid in copper coins, and regular folks could use them to pay their taxes. Laws were passed to make sure people started using the official coins, like banning any other form of metal money, as well as laws to stop hoarders, because humans are at best grubby little creatures. You could buy anything with the new copper coins, like a higher rank at court, which is what a lot of people did. The thing about making money in the government sense is you have to be careful how much you make. Too much money on the ground and it loses its value. You get hyperinflation like post-war Germany, where it was more economical to use money as wallpaper or to literally burn it than to spend it. Guess what happened in Nara, Japan? Well, I can't sneak anything past you. Sure enough, there got to be too many coins in circulation. Folks were still trading commodities like rice and silk. Then something frustratingly familiar happened. The 735 smallpox epidemic wrecked the supply chains, driving up prices and exacerbating inflation. The government wasn't solely to blame for there being too many copper coins, though. There were a shed load of counterfeit coins passing from hand to hand. How many in a shed load specifically? Well, according to a court document from 760, as many as 50% of all coins were fake. A decently skilled blacksmith could knock out convincing copper coins all day long. The government is responsible for their attempt to correct the problem, though. A coin worth 10 times the value, which immediately made the problem worse. So, desperate to stop the great wave of inflation, they kept doing the same thing, over and over again, with the exact same result. The new coins would further depress the value of the old coins, until another new coin depressed them, too. Basically, it was a right mess. Then, they started to run out of copper. So they made the coins smaller and smaller with each iteration, with less and less copper, until eventually the coins were 90% lead and 10% copper. Don't laugh though, 
the U.S. penny is only 2.5% copper. While I'm bringing up the penny, why is it still here? No one likes them. You can't use them in vending machines. Cashiers hate the sight of more than six pennies at once. Less than a fifth of retail transactions are even done with cash anyway. They're made of zinc, the mining of which is an environmental mugging, whether domestic or imported. And they literally cost twice as much to produce as they're worth. 2.1 times, actually. Why can't we be more like Canada, New Zealand, Australia, the Netherlands, Finland, and Sweden? Okay, rant over. By the middle of the Heian period, 794 to 1185, people had given up on coin money, and the government did too. It would be another five centuries before Japan tried coins again. That was the yen, introduced in 1871 by the Meiji government, which I cannot hear mentioned without thinking of Rurouni Kenshin, the reverse blade sword, and the cross-shaped scar. And if you've never seen it, oh my god, you should making that one of the oldest, still-extant currencies going. So, I guess they did work it out eventually. The word yen means round object, an appropriate description of a coin. The Meiji government introduced the yen in hopes of stabilizing Japan's economy, and it worked right up to the start of World War II, when a lot of stuff got real bad, real fast. But after a lengthy post-war recovery, the yen is now the most traded currency in Asia and the third most traded in the world. The yen isn't the oldest still-in-use currency, though. Another top contender, for as much as it will help them, is the Russian ruble, which dates all the way back to the 13th century, though it wasn't official until the 18th century court of Peter the Great. How was that new season of The Great, by the way? Did the writers ever learn how to use swear words correctly? Hit me up on the social media, let me know. Facebook and Instagram, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter, Brain on Facts Pod, TikTok, Moxie LaBouche, where I live stream a portion of the episode recording, except this week where I didn't feel like putting on pants. The ruble has, of course, changed a lot over the span of that many years. There was a brief time when Russia didn't appear on global maps, and the Russian ruble wasn't in circulation. During Soviet Union times, it was the Soviet ruble, before going back to, or moving on with, the new ruble in 1993. So, count its exact age however you like. Makes me know never mind. One universal around the world is, if there's something valuable that you can sell, people will copy it. It's just what we do. Counterfeiting dates to the invention of money, and no iteration was safe. Forgery proved to be such a problem that governments would lay down harsh penalties for it. Counterfeiting money in China in the 14th century, for example, and you might get your head snicked off. In Nara, Japan, you'd get 200 strokes of the rod, and the person who turned you in gets all your stuff. In Britain, you could be burned at the stake, while in the American colonies, they'd just hang you. Governments didn't jump straight to capital punishment, of course, Lesser countermeasures were tried first. Ben Franklin, who owned a firm that printed money for several colonies, intentionally misspelled Pennsylvania, believing that the counterfeiters would correct the error while making their forgeries. It's almost the opposite of a fake street or a paper town, a falsehood intentionally added to a map or other reference work so that the author can trace who's copying it based on where the fake thing turns up. 
Now, you can't talk about the history of money without talking about fiat currency, though sadly that has nothing to do with tiny little Italian cars that used to be cool and now look like toys for babies who are behind in developing their motor skills. Don't at me, you know I'm right. No, this fiat means decree. We're talking about the gold standard, where currency or paper money has a value tied directly to gold, because we as a species seem to have decided that this pretty but almost pointlessly soft metal is the end-all and be-all of value. Countries can issue money at will, and this can get you in a spot of bother. Just ask the folks in Zimbabwe trying to buy bread with a trillion-dollar bill. The gold standard was introduced by the UK in 1821. It's a system in which the standard unit of currency is kept at the value of a fixed quantity of gold, which increases confidence in international trade by preventing governments from excessively issuing currency. Eventually, a lot of other countries got on board, with the US adopting the gold standard in 1900. However, the system has drawbacks like making it damn near impossible to isolate and insulate your economy from a global depression. After we had a big one of those, great you might call it, the world began to rethink the gold standard, and by the 1970s, gold was no longer tied to currency. And now a word from our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales 
every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. My bailiwick is usually the past, but what about the future? I am not talking about NFT, crypto, or any other nonsense such like, but you can check out episode 155, Hate to Burst Your Bubble, for some parallels to where I think that stuff is going, like Dutch tulips and beanie babies. Sorry, I shouldn't dismiss crypto like they're all scams. You should do your own research and then dismiss them. Presenting instead, The Quid. My British listeners, hey Richard, are probably saying, uh, yeah, we have that now, we've had it for a while. No, this is QUID in all caps, an acronym for Quasi-Universal Intergalactic Denomination, and a backronym to the British slang for the pound sterling, meaning the word came first and the acronym second, which is almost always the case when someone tells you an acronym is the origin of a common word. This QUID is money for outer space. The proposed space currency was created as a viral marketing campaign launched by currency exchange company Travelex and ad agency Talk PR. Quids are circular, clear, chemically inert, smooth plastic disks with colored centers, symbolizing the eight planets of the solar system, and the denominations ranging from one to ten. It's still just completely a hypothetical, But since people with $550 million to burn can now tourist their asses up to the International Space Station, who knows? We might get quids in space. Y'all caught me in a silly mood today, sorry. While we're talking about old Blighty, here's one of those things that I've wondered about for years, but never stopped to bother to Google. And that's old-timey British money. Shillings, crowns, guineas, and all that. Well, I have looked it up, and I'm still not sure I completely got it, but here you go. Pounds of the present are decimalized, meaning it's basically metric. Units of 10 and 100, like how we have 100 pennies to the dollar because U.S. money also decimalized. Like the ruble and yen, the pound is long in the tooth, dating back 1,200 years to the Saxon kings, made official by King Athelstan. Yes, the one from Vikings and my second favorite TV philia. The name pound does come from the unit of measure, just as a pound cake used to be made with a pound of each ingredient. Rather than dividing into 100 pennies, the original pound was equal to 240 sterling coins, hence the name pounds of sterling. 
between Athelstan and decimalization in 1971, here's what you might find wedged between the cushions of the settee. There's the pound, which breaks down into 20 shillings. Those shillings break down into 12 pennies, or 240 pennies per pound. FYI, the plural of penny is pence when you're referring to an amount of money. And it is pennies when referring to the number of actual coins. But don't be surprised if I use them willy-nilly interchangeably. That's not the bottom end of the range, though. The penny further divided into two half-pennies, so 480 halfpennies to the pound. And a half-penny could be split further into two farthings, 960 farthings to the pound now. Do I have that right? Because it just sounds crazy. There were a number of coins to make different specific arrangements, like threepence or threepence, sixpence, also called a tanner, the shilling, which had the slang name the bob before the pound did, a florin for two shillings or a two-bob bit, the half-crown, which was two shillings and sixpence, and the crown, which was five shillings. What the actual hell? Like, I know if you grow up with it, it's not so bad, but as someone with 20-plus years in retail cashiering, that sounds like a nightmare. While Britain and neighboring Ireland didn't get on the decimalization train until 1971, it wasn't the first time the idea came up. Parliament had considered decimalizing the currency in 1824. In 1841, the Decimal Association was founded to support both decimalization and the use of the metric system, which the French had adopted in the 1790s and maybe also created. It kind of depends on your source on that one. The idea was out there, but it languished for a century, during which time the crown, with a capital C, issued the two-shilling silver florin and the double florin. It was actually the adoption of decimalized money by South Africa in 1961 that finally kicked their arses into gear. The Committee on the Inquiry of Decimal Currency was created, and their report on the issue resulted in the final agreement to adopt decimalization in 1966. How do you move an entire nation of people from one state of affairs to the other state of affairs? Then-Chancellor James Callaghan announced his five-year plan for the changeover to be arranged. The new money went live on Monday, February 15, 1971, also called D-Day, D for decimal, and it was a disaster. Wait, wait, one moment, please. Okay, okay, I'm being told it actually went fine. Well, even. The Guardian reported the next day, the fear of confusion as travelers and shoppers met the new bronze coins for the first time proved unfounded. Just as with Y2K and what should have happened with COVID, a lot of effort went into making sure the currency changeover would be a non-issue. It wasn't simply a matter of hanging some posters and running PSAs on the radio. The first decimal coins were actually issued in 1968, to give people time to get used to them. Shops began posting prices in both systems. Banks and shops trained their staff with booklets provided by the government and tests you had to pass to prove you could handle the new money. All the banks closed for the Thursday and Friday before that Monday to convert accounts over. Stock exchange and post office too. 
Now, not everyone had a jolly old time with it, though. One woman closed her store because of decimalization. I can't be bothered with this new money, she said. No, I'm not going to try the accent, and I didn't have time to go on Fiverr this week. Six robberies in five years couldn't close me, but this new money has. I know the old system, and I'm not going to fiddle about with any new one. That is a strange place to draw the line, but you do you, boo. One thing I like about the whole decimalization story is the phrase, what is that in old money, that I haven't heard since my dad and I used to watch Are You Being Served on a Saturday night, which, of course, came up during my research, and which people around me, or person, since my beleaguered husband is the only human I see, can expect to hear me cram into conversations for weeks to come. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Shops in England and Wales are not legally obliged to accept Scottish paper money. According to the Bank of England, legal tender only applies to Royal Mint coins and Bank of England notes, so those originating in Scotland are out. Interestingly, 1 and 2p coins are only legal tender if their total amount is less than 20p. So unlike here in the States, a cashier in England could absolutely refuse to take your jar of pennies. Remember, you can always find the source links for the show and the script at yourbrainonfacts.com. This show is part of the Airwave Media Network, alongside such other truly quality programs as The Constant, Food with Mark Bittman, History of the Second World War, and Investing for Beginners. Find out more at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe.